too. Good day, everybody. Welcome to the Deal Scout. Josh here, fellow deal makers. If you're out looking to acquire, invest in businesses or commercial real estate, and even uh, some alternative investments, then then this is the show for you. We're going to have conversations with deal makers to learn about uh, deals, learn about building businesses, learn about selling things, and uh, the art and the, the the science of deals. On today's show, we're going to have a conversation with uh, an author, fellow deal maker. He's done. Uh, built 42 companies in, in his uh, career and uh, wrote a bunch of books. And he's coming on the show to share his deal experience. Les, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Josh. Hi, everybody. Yeah. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what are you up to? Well, the first thing that I should uh, clear up pretty quickly, because um, two or three paragraphs in, it's, it's going to become a little obvious, is that Although I'm talking to you at the minute from my home in Chesapeake Bay in Maryland, and although I'm an American citizen with my American passport, uh, I'm not from these parts originally. Uh, I'm from Texas. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I grew up in uh, Belfast in Ireland, uh, part of the United Kingdom. And um, I guess the part that's, that's uh, uh, relevant to the listeners is that uh, I was a weird kid. I was, you know, I, all my kids, all my friends when I was a kid, they wanted to be a firefighter like you were. Uh, they wanted to go into space. They wanted, I was fascinated by business. Don't ask me why. I have no idea. Uh, but I was fascinated by anything to do with work. I used to plague my father, um, uh, who was just a white-collar worker, but uh, I wanted to go into the office with him. I was just fascinated by business. It worked out years later that really I have a fascination about organizational dynamics, but I was way too young to even be able to say those words. And so a great mentor gave me a fantastic piece of advice, my first ever mentor. And he said, if you're serious about business, go either qualify as a lawyer or as an accountant. Uh, so I chose the accounting route became a CPA or the UK equivalent of chartered accountant. But I had no interest in doing tax and stuff like that. Um, I was interested in learning how businesses work. That's why I did it. So that as soon as I qualified, um, I set up on my own uh, as a quotes consultant, which was ridiculous. I was in my early 20s. What did I know about consulting? But a few people were, dumb, were, were kind enough to let me practice with them. Uh, there was a huge push on entrepreneurship in the UK at that point because the UK was uh, essentially a branch economy to the US and South Korea. If Daewoo or Ford caught a cold, we'd lose 15,000 jobs in a plant in Leeds or Liverpool. And so they were pushing really hard for new startups. A lot of incentives were around. And I got really good at advising people and helping them start up. Long, very long story short, um, I got this reputation for helping people, which uh, transmogrified into people starting to actually ask me if I would join them in the founding team. So I essentially over a 10 year period got to cherry pick six to eight opportunities you know, every year. And that's where that ridiculous number comes from. Um, I was in a I was really in a fantastic position back then. And you know what? Um you do something 42, even a dumb Irishman starts to see recurring patterns when you do something frequently. And that, that's what happened. I started to codify what I saw. What was the difference between business? Two of my 42 failed very publicly. Northern Ireland is a, is a big village. I learned more from those failures than I did anything on the successes. But it began to codify success, what the patterns of success were. And I'll finish with this to complete the story. 22 years ago, got the opportunity to move to the West coast of the U S had a great friend out there who gave me a lot of entrees. I wanted to prove this model that I believed I was seeing right through to global organizations. And I had a magnificent opportunity. I got to sit with Microsoft's on microsystems, American express, the U S army, Harvard university. And I proved this model out from cradle to grave 2010 published it in my first book, Predictable Success, became a New York Times USA Today bestseller. And that's what I've, I've done ever since is I, I work with uh, organizational leaders for profits and not for profits and help take them through that life cycle of growth. You did ask, you got the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for the answer. Uh, now, you, you talk about the life cycle 
of a of a business. Now I'm looking at the image. So if someone types in predictable success and then does a, you know, they could see the book, but then if they do an image search, they could kind of see this arc. Will you walk us through the arc? And let me let me set the stage with this for for the listeners. We work with a lot of teams that are acquiring businesses, growing businesses, selling businesses. So in our audience, we have you know private equity guys and gals and you know and these kind of people. So this, you know, like talk to us about the arc and how it applies to people who are investors and building and growing multiple businesses. Sure. So if you think, as you said, it's an arc, uh, if you uh, don't have a screen in front of you at the minute, just toss a ball up in the air, it goes up in the air, comes down again. It's that arc that every organization goes through. I discovered after I wrote the book that it applies to any group of two or more people who are trying to achieve common goals. So it works for profits, not for profits, but we'll stick in the in the business for and the other thing I like to make very clear is I didn't invent any of this. No interns were used or harmed in the making of this model. <laughs> it's pure observations, what I saw over and over and over again. And so all I did was put names and things that the listeners are going to instantly recognize. And that's part of the, the uh, great thing I think that uh, the book brought, uh, I know, brings to folks is it's, it gives you a shared vocabulary. So let's go through these stages real quick. First one, many of the listeners are very familiar with it, early struggle. That's what it is. It's a struggle. It's a, it's a struggle to find a profitable, sustainable market. Huge mortality rate. 80% of all new ventures fail in the first three years in an average year. Funny enough, in any extremes of the economy, the economy is frothy or it's in the pits. That number goes through the roof. It's in the 90s. So huge mortality rate. We might talk a little bit later on in the, in the show about uh, uh, why that is. But one of the reasons is a failure to focus on finding a profitable, sustainable market. Uh, a big disservice done over the last 15 years by all of us who write, talk, coach, speak from platforms about business growth is we've done a really awful, almost evil thing, which is we've glorified this, the cult of the startup. We talk about startups as if there's some glorious, magnificent thing. They're not. There's only one strategy if you're a startup. Stop being one. Stop being one because you will ultimately die. Your resources will run out. Now, we want to keep a lot of the features of being a nimble startup. Sure. But if you're in early struggle, you want to get out of it. You don't want to be one of the 80%. You do get the right things. You get out of early struggle. You hit the first growth stage. Think of the uptick in, the, in that arc. And it, I get it of all seven stages, the most technical phrase, I call it fun. Because yeah. it's fun. That's what it is. We've found our profitable, sustainable market. Now we can mine it. We're hugely evangelical. If, if you know somebody whose business is in fun, you meet them in the street and you're dumb enough to go across the street and talk to them, you will end up buying whatever they're selling or manufacturing because they're full of it. And we, we've only got one word we use in fun. Yes. We just say yes to everything. We pretend we have a price sheet, and a, and, but we don't. We'll do whatever the customer wants. And that gives us a, a, a lot of early growth. We work like crazy. We do something that's going to come back and bite us later on, which is we build the myths and legends of the business during, during fun. Because we say yes to these ridiculous things, we achieve the impossible by delivering on them. And we build these myths and legends, which later on, we're going, you know, everybody's going to go around the, the, the barbecue pit and talk about them and embellish them. Fun is great fun. You're in fun. Sure as shooting. At some point, you're naturally going to fall into the third stage. The third stage is what I call whitewater, because that's what it feels like. Fun, we just said yes to everything we delivered. Whitewater, we start to trip over ourselves. We start to just do stupid things. It's an existential crisis for the founder owners, because at that point, they start to think, did we all just get stupid in the last six months? Why did we sign that lease without writing, without reading the, the details? We're, we're stuck into that. How could I not show up for an important meeting like that? How come we're spending all our time firefighting stuff? And what has happened is the growth that we got in fun has brought complexity, which we didn't really feel that we were sort of like frogs in a pot of water. It was just getting more and more complex as time went on. And then eventually that complexity begins to weigh down our ability to just deliver. And what do we need to do? put systems and processes in. It's just a stage of adult transformation, adolescent transformation, really, of the organization. If we want to get to the next stage, which I call predictable success, we've got to put enterprise-wide, probably using that word for the first time, our systems and processes in place. We don't have to do that interestingly. You can just choose to go back to fun. A lot of people who are clever people decide, I don't want to do what's coming next. I just want to have a mom and pop. I don't want to have the next Starbucks or the next McKinsey and whatever. 
So we put our systems and processes in place. If we do want to get to the next stage, we get to the peak of that arc. We call it predictable success. And the key thing about predictable success is it gives you one thing that you can't do in fun, and that's the ability to scale. In fun, growth is like that arc. It's always going to taper off. You're going to get to the point where you're just polishing the apple. If you want a J-curve, listeners, with my hand, it's taking off like a rocket. If you want your growth to be able to have that J-curve, you've got to put the systems and processes in place to get predictable success. And then really quickly, I'll do the decline stage very fast. If we do the right things, you can, unlike human aging, you can stay in predictable success for as long as you want. GE, by my reckoning, was there for about 32 years. Uh, sorry, about 17 years. I have a client company back in the UK has been in predictable success for 32 years because they just do the right things. What happens with most of us is what I do at the dessert table. We just had something that was really, really good. Uh, the systems and processes really give us that ability to, to scale. So what will we do? We'll put more in place. And we start to become over-systematized. We fall down into the first decline stage. I call it treadmill. And treadmill is most big organizations, big businesses get into treadmill from time to time. We're just getting a little bit, rinse and repeat. We're losing our mojo a little bit. If you catch that and you see it, you can reverse the decline, stop some of the systems and processes. No reason for a potential customer to have to fill in 13 fields in an online form to contact us, get rid of 11 of those. We do the things to get us back to predictable success. But if we don't do that, it's why treadmill, which is like a mirror image of whitewater, is again an existential time. If we don't fix it, we fall into the big rut, which is a long, long, long slide into irrelevance. Harvard University in the big rut for nearly 100 years, but $33 billion in near cash, not going away anytime soon, but it's on a long slide to irrelevancy. Microsoft, in my view, big rut, long slide to irrelevancy. And then we hit the final stage, death rattle. When it looks like something's happening, like happened with Kodak a few years ago, and for Kodak, but all that was happening is we're parsing this thing up to put it away. So those, those are the seven stages: early struggle, right up to predictable success, down to death rattle. The key thing is there are only the two stages you want to be in: fun or predictable success. Which of these, right? So you you've been through, you know, you've worked with forty-two companies as you know, sitting on the cap table, and you've consulted for a ton of other companies, right? Let's talk about the companies that you were a part of, okay? Which stage, when, when they, uh, when, what stage do you enjoy most in this process? That's, that's a fantastic and an insightful question, Josh. And um, I'll answer it for myself, uh, but then what I'd like to do is give an answer that means that the listeners can all apply this to themselves. I'm a fun guy. Right. And I don't mean that, you know, a mushroom. <laughs> I hope I am a fun guy, but um, uh, fun is my world. So I've, I built a, I built a consulting company um, that was where I started doing all of this. We, essentially, we started the first things that are now called incubation centers before uh, uh, like Combinator, all those wonderful places started up. Uh, a fellow serial entrepreneur and I started one just from scratch. It took off and we ended up about 120 people 13 offices worldwide very much in predictable success um sold that on eventually uh i owned the the master license for pizza hut in ireland um multi 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 outlet predictable success undoubtedly i'm a fun guy there's me and if the listeners could see i'm looking over at my only assistant who has no opposable thumbs and is asleep on the couch right now. And that's it. I, I, I love to be in fun. I like taking it up to fun, maybe even into whitewater, perhaps nudging early predictable success. But at that point, I want to, and I've built my existing business um, to, to allow me to stay in fun indefinitely. But let me give a broader answer for our um, listeners that may help them Make sure that because a lot of the, the coaching I do with leaders, um, the, the issues we're trying to work with for them, they come out of their mindset not being in the stage of growth that they're happy with. And, and here's the key to this. We've talked about our seven stages. Vitally important to know that what drives businesses through those stages isn't your avatar, your business plan, your strategic offsite. It's the leadership mix at the top of the organization. And here's what I mean by this. 
80% of all successful businesses, you remember we have 80% drop-off rate of the, t- of the 20% that make it, 80% of those are founded by what I call a visionary leader. That's somebody who's a high-risk taker, left probably an over comp, a, 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 comp plan, a, a job with a comp plan that's greater than market, to, to take a shot on something that's got an 80% chance of failure. Big picture, you know, they they like to think of themselves as like eagles in the top of a mountain. They, 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 they're starters, you know, for them, everything. It's not important that, it's not just that I got, find this great book, I'm buying copies for everybody. We're all, it's got a rev- squirrel, <laughs> very squirrel oriented. Yeah, you've seen that movie, Pixar movie. Yeah. Oh, a little Doug wants to be involved, but he can't help himself. Every time he sees a, a squirrely so visionary leaders are most founders are visionary leaders and they have a high squirrel factor shiny new ball syndrome so what they do if they were to work on their own they would never get the business out of early struggle because they keep thinking about some new thing to put in place and they self-damage so what uh visionary founders who succeed do without knowing any of my terminology they subliminally know i need somebody who's going to get stuff done so they go out and find themselves uh what i call an operator and Mm -hmm. operators are ruthless finishers that's it no interest in hyperbole really not interested in your strategic planning offsite just tell me give me the marching orders tell me what i want what you want done and let me do it but please don't watch because it's not going to be pretty operators just go through breeze block walls if they haven't sold their grandmother by the end of the day they will do so if that's necessary to get this thing done. And the visionary and usually a cadre of operators are together what gets the business into fun and grows it through fun. And the visionaries there conducting this little mini orchestra of operators, and they're all, you know, single dialogues. There's no real interaction between these big dog operators. One's doing marketing, one's doing sales, one's doing operations. And the visionaries just tell them all what to do. They work fast together. They can finish each other's sentences. And it's the operators that take what the visionary does and enable that vision to happen. That, that, if you're a visionary and an operator, early struggle is why you, you know, you took that on, but you got out of it and you want to be in fun because there are, you know, the number one reason people start businesses, freedom and autonomy. It's not the money. It's the freedom and autonomy. You know, definition of an entrepreneur, somebody stop working 40 hours a week for somebody else to work 80 hours a week for themselves. And that's true. And so fun is perfect for that. Here's the thing that happens in Whitewater for the first time. We have to go find ourselves somebody who's not us, not a visionary, not an operator, somebody I call a processor. And in Whitewater, we, for the first time, we'll have some little mini peas, mini processors, keeping us out of jail during fun. So we might, you know, somebody's filing our tax returns. Somebody else is making sure we're this side of OSHA or whatever regulatory body we've got to be okay with. But we haven't been doing anything enterprise-wide in systems and processes. And now we've got to get like, maybe our first controller or an HR manager or a quality, you know, maybe it's just a warehouse manager, somebody who knows how to stack stuff and process minded people. And that's where the conflicts start because visionaries and operators, all they're concerned about is doing the right thing, which basically means anything the customer asks. Processors are concerned about doing the thing right they're sort of agnostic as to what the thing is, as long as it's in their wheelhouse, well, whatever you ask them to do, they're going to do it right. And that means they're going to take their time. And that means the visionary and the operator are going to go ballistic. And the vast majority of businesses that hit whitewater stay there for at least twice, sometimes three times longer than they need to because the body keeps rejecting the processor organ. We go get this processor we need, bring them in. Things get worse. It's horrible. Any operator worth their salt, you ask them to fill in a spreadsheet, they'd rather get a paper clip and open it out and stab themselves in the eye. And so we get a lot of conflict in white water. Now, if you're a processor leader, fun will drive you ballistic, ballistic. I mean, in fact, most processors, when they join a business that, you know, we need, we need our first HR manager, let's say, we typically go get one from a larger organization, right? Because small organizations like us, like we used to be, don't have them. The processor arrives, they look around, they think, how did these idiots ever <laughs> make 
Ah, Penny. This is, they don't think it's in, in uh, Whitewater. They think it's an early struggle. Not, there's nothing here. So if you're a processor leader, you'll want to be in predictable success. In fact, to be quite honest, most processors worth their salt want to be just in the fringe of early treadmill because they want belts and braces. They want systems and some fallback. So where you want to be, uh, there's a fourth side, which we might get to, but where you want to be is very much depending on how you're wired up here between your ears. Yeah. All right. You got to tell us what the fourth one is. Well, uh, the fourth one uh, is interesting. Uh, my own fallibility uh, led to the discovery of the fourth one. So I, I recognize these patterns of leaders uh, very early on, uh, visionary operator processor, you know, having done this thing myself 42 times and then working with, as you say, hundreds and hundreds of other organizations. I'm at the point now I can spot a visionary within, you know, just let, just show me, just open the desk, the, 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 you know, the laptop of anybody and show it to me. If you look at a processor's uh, desktop, not a single loose document, nothing. <laughs> There's nothing there. There's a folder and everything's nested in subfolders. You open an operator's laptop and look at the, the, the desktop, Every document anybody ever sent them is just there, right? It's like, because I can't be bothered with organizing anything. Thank goodness for search, because if I need a document, that's how I'll find it. Uh, a visionary, uh, the brand new bestest iMac is on the way, you know, on overnight FedEx delivery, paid yeah. the extra 300 bucks to get it one day early, right? So I can spot these people in my life. And I, and I spent, uh, sadly, a decade and a half uh, helping visionary operator processors work together in Whitewater so that they could get out of there and into predictable success, teaching them what their hot button, mutual hot buttons are, still do it all, what their mutual hot buttons are and, and how not to get into conflict. Because what happens is you end up with the visionary and the processor in conflict. Visionary saying yes to everything, processor saying no to everything. And the operator just absents themselves. They don't want to go to meetings anyway, and they certainly don't want to go to meetings where these pair are, are having it out. So it ends up being a visionary versus a, a processor argument. So I help teams resolve all of that. But what happened is then six months later, either they'd call me or I'd be dumb enough to call them, say, how's it going? I said, it was fantastic. It was absolutely great. And note the use of the past participle. And then three, four months later, it just we got back into our old ways and we're back in our corners again and fighting. And, and what, why I came out to the U.S. originally, you remember that journey back 22 years ago, was because I knew that our organizations obviously got into predictable success and stayed there for prolonged periods of time. So I had this chance to go watch them. And here's what happened. I would go into, and back then it was all uh, in person. There was next to no, nothing actually virtual. Skype didn't come along for a little while. Um, and I'd get a chance just to watch it and say, oh, visionary, two operators, processor, processor. Then they would start to make decisions, right? Which is what senior leadership teams do. And I noticed that when any non-trivial issue came up, like I'm not talking about where we're going to have the Christmas party this year or what color are we going to repaint the wall. When a non-trivial issue came up, I would see this fourth style would emerge in the room. And it's going to sound, it's the West Coast, which is good because it's going to sound very woo-woo and zen. This style would just emerge within the team. Sometimes I could locate it as often coming from an individual, but it was always in these successful teams, something the whole team then moved into. And while I was trying to get a grip on what was going on, because I didn't know what was going on, I gave it a name. I call this style the synergist style because that's what happens. And it's the title of my second book called The Synergist. What happened was these teams had learned a way to synergize their natural visionary operator and processor, the need to scratch their visionary operator or processor itch because that's where it goes wrong. Visionary gets in a room, can't abide a solution to a problem if it doesn't scratch their visionary itch, even if it would be effective. Processor gets in the room, can't abide not being allowed to go through all 60 slides that are in 12 point to get to make their point because that's their processor edge. These teams find a way to do it. And what I discovered, long story short, is that there is a fourth learned style, which is called the synergist style. And it's that's the one thing that puts it out there as being different from visionary operator and processor. They're all nascent styles. We're born with our element of visionary operator or processor. The synergist style is a learned style. Now, some people learn it very, very early on. 
And so they end up being natural sinners of all their lives. And you'll know these people because they're the folks that when they're in, in, doing something just individually, you would barely notice them. But when they're in a group or team environment, they have this way of just reflecting, of resummarizing, of positioning, of, of facilitating that brings the visionary operator processor styles together. And that fourth style is also a style, by the way, that's going to be most comfortable in predictable success. And some of them work very well in treadmill. And the reason is in fun, there's nothing to synergize. Uh, that's why uh, when I see uh, hip trendy organizations, you're going to have to forgive me. I'm a very old man with very old man abusing many things. Um, try to um, personify culture building in fun way too early. And they bring in a so-called head of culture. That's always a synergist. And that person always ends up leaving because there's nothing to synergize. We're all just having fun. So that's the fourth step. Okay. Awesome. So uh, visionary, operator, processor, synergist. Yes. And you need different, uh, different people and skill sets, how people are wired for different stages, right? If you take a processor and try to get them to be in the early struggle, they're going to jump out the window, right? Correct. Or if you take a visionary and you put them in the predictable success and treadmill spot, they're going to jump out the window and follow the processor, right? So you... I'm taking a guess, probably high visionary. Is that right? Okay. So how was it as a visionary going through CPA training, looking at those numbers and looking at spreadsheets and P&Ls all day? Yes. That's a, Josh, you got a lot of great intuitive um, intuition in this. So uh, if you think about these four styles, I think about the one of great visionary operator processor center, just there are two combinations that are like oil and water one is the visionary and the processor they rub each other up like crazy right now i'm i'm, off, I'm exaggerating a lot of visionaries and processors are going on pretty well but by default they drive each other crazy because they've got almost 180 degree different views in the world visionary yes we'll work it out later processor no we're just not going to do it for, and so what happens, you, you hire your, you know, your wonderful new controller. She comes in, hires, uh, negotiates a corner office, double monitors, Windows 10. And, uh, you know, boom, 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 the door opens. It's the big V because that's how you get in a meeting with a visionary, right? You're just unfortunate enough to be in their line of sight when they have a squirrel <laughs> idea and they walk in. And, hey, great to see you. You know what we just did? Sign a million dollar contract with Jones and company. But for any visionary worth their salt, Anything north of about 650000 is a million-dollar contract, right? Because <laughs> yeah. we'll put a little bit. You got to round up. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we'll add a little more. So. And uh, for a processor, a million dollars is a one followed by six zeros, a full stop, and two zeros. So this visionary is full of hyperbole and is going to get us all in jail eventually <laughs> because of the bullshit that they play. Uh, and the visionary's thinking, What's happening to all my freedom and autonomy? So, so they're oil and water. The other two that don't work well together typically are synergists and operators because synergists are always in people's face and, and what they believe to be and almost always is a positive way. So hard things, hey, you want to have a cup of coffee? Can, you know, why don't we, why don't we go out for a chat? You want to, would you like to come bowling with my wife and I? And an operator is, I have a job to do, right? <laughs> yeah. I have an actual job to do. I, I, how about never? Would never work for you? Right? Again, I'm exaggerating, but they have different worldviews. Operators think synergists really need to focus and do something. And synergists think operators, if, as I said earlier, if they haven't sold their grandmother already, they'll do so before close of business today. Uh, so to go all the way back to your question, I am a VP, which is a very unusual combination. Except in one uh, uh, career choice, most successful consultants are VPs, uh, which is really weird. Visionary uh, processor, huh? Uh, it, it took me a long time to work it out. So uh, a visionary processor, I love seeing the big picture and I love codifying it. I just don't want to do it, right? <laughs> now, yeah. I, that, that was a development for me because the first third of my career, I did it, you know, nonstop. 
but I'm not at the point where I'm happy to help other people do it. So that's where I ended up with that. So you're a visionary processor. I'm a visionary synergist. Like if there were a combination, right. those, those would be uh, mine. Now, the, uh, I've got a follow-up question for you. This, we're having fun here. All right. <laughs> so as a visionary processor, did you have internal conflict of knowing which one was your dominant? Like what, what role do you really fit in a business? Cause you said you became a, a charter CPA, right? And then you were one of the first to kind of branch off and do your own, you know, your own consultancy. That sounded like a, a conflict of, of walk us through. Am I right? Yeah, and, and it, it's a conflict every day. So, um, for, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, before we started the call here, Josh, you were sharing with me the number of podcasts you're putting out. It just so happens um, I do many fewer than you do, but I have my own podcast. And I was just, before we got on here, uh, uh, doing the post-production on one of uh, my most recent podcasts. And I find myself doing what happens at some point almost every day. I'm geeking out on how to build ScreenFlow templates. ScreenFlow is the software I use. And uh, I love a template. I just love me a template. I'd rather fire up a template than do something from scratch every time. So I'm 90 minutes into YouTube getting audio codec settings. And that's the last thing that, and if I was consulting to me and my business, (laughs) are you crazy? All right, it's 25 grand for me to go stand on a stage and talk to people. And I'm spending an hour and a half trying to work out what an audio codec should be. So I have that conflict all the time. Yeah. I, I, I always have that. Um, but where I, for, from our listener perspective, I, I would want to make a, a, take what we just talked about and add it to um, an observation that you were making about a very specific thing, which are processors in early struggle. There's one wrinkle in that which investors bump into a lot, which is in tech. And in tech, a lot of founding teams are a triad where there's one who's the visionary, can see what this software is going to do and are going to take over the world, make it the next Uber of whatever. Secondly, there's an operator who's just going to scrum this stuff to death and beat up on everybody to make it happen. And there's almost always, because it's tech, there is a processor. And the processor is the, you know, the keeper of the code, the one with the magic, the one with the secret sauce. And that is almost always problematic because the existence of a strong processor, we haven't I'm talking about the different degrees to which you can be any of these things, but you can you can be a trace, any style, visionary operator, processor, synergist. It can be a secondary style, a primary style, or it can be a dominant style. And often in tech startups, the processor is a dominant processor. And what that does is it pulls an inherent, uh, it has an inherent uh, weight on the growth of the organization. If you were to do that with a straightforward plastic extrusion business, it would never get out of early struggle. It only manages to do it because being tech, it needs the the code that the processor is generating. But instead of using that as you would use the supply chain in any other manufacturing business, it gets seen as an integral part of the leadership from day one. And I want to fast forward to any tech business that's been around, uh, is out of early struggle and has been around for some years. The, the engineers, the techies are like a little cult of high priests and nobody's allowed to look at them in the eye in the corridor if you ever see them because they're never there. You're not allowed to talk to them directly and ask them why about anything. And that's because way back in early struggle, it got this founder uh, aura that you wouldn't do in the supply chain. Now, I realize every individual who's in tech is now spitting at the screen. And I don't mean it in a derogatory way. I'm saying that's what happens. And you've got to be aware you're building yourself institutional problems down the road where you're going to have your wonderful uh, uh, business and you're going to have this pit, this group that everybody else is compensating in and for and around. Now, there are many great exceptions, but that problem happens all the time. And And it goes all, rewind it all the way back to the founding group. Yeah. So as a a VP, visionary processor, you like to stay in the fun that that's your, that's, that's your zone. You found, you know, you've taken companies to predictable and you're like, yeah, it's kind of boring around here. Let's, let's go back to 
the the fun stage, right? So for for you to be involved in a company that really spices you up, they need to be in that early struggle or in oh, that fun range, right? No, not in what I do. Uh, I love consulting into all of the stages except the big run and, and death rattle. I like, I like, I don't do much work with, with early struggle these days. Uh, just a, it's tough for them to pay me. Uh, but I love, <laughs> yeah. I love working in fun, but they don't reach out very much because why, who needs a consultant when you're in fun, right? Who wants one of those? So I do the vast majority of my work in whitewater and usually with teams that are still got the founder in there. Uh, I do a lot of work in treadmill, which I really love doing, helping uh, businesses recover. And I've, and I've then got a lot of, of spin on work, if you want to call it that, of businesses I've worked with who got into particular process and want to stay there. And that I really enjoy. I wouldn't want to work in there. You know, a lot of times people say to me, would you not just come and be this role or that role? You never in a million years would that work for either of us. I, I, it's about freedom and autonomy. I, I want to, I don't like personally the the impositional feeling of having a nut to meet of other people's payroll and having to show up regularly for meetings. That's, that doesn't do it for me, but working with those organizations, love it. Yeah. But that's in your arc of your organization. It's a fun. That's, yeah. that's the fun part. I'm in you. fun. Yeah. Your, your organization is in fun Correct. when you're working with groups like that. So now let's bring this over to investment, right? So you, you mentioned, uh, for you know, tech investors looking at a early stage tech company, it's it's smart to have this this triad, right? But it's going to cause problematic stuff later on. So as an investor looking at the team, right? There's a saying in venture capital is we we bet the jockey. I actually had a you know a brand back in the day called Bet the Jockey. But you're 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 looking at the the management team and their style and what what persona are they? Visionary, operator, processor, or the synergist? Now. For um, you, you mentioned before we, you know, we hit record. You, you, you talk about like, are you what? What are what are you building the business for, right? So let let's talk to the investors, the private equity guys and gals in the audience. What are you building the business for? To are you building it to exit? Are you building it for something else? Kind of talk to us about that. Talk to that audience. Yeah, that's a, a, a great point, and it and it also does uh, bring a, a sort of a. a I guess a, a diff, a, an additional perspective to that, particularly that tech combo that I talked about a little bit earlier. So what happens in a lot in startups, and a lot of it is because of, of some of the media stories and all the rest of it that we talked about before, is that there are folks who start a, a, a business and they want to scale it to flip it. They don't want to scale it to build a legacy. Uh, they want to scale it. They're, that's what they're there to do. They're, they want to build this thing. And they want to scale it as fast as possible in order to flip it. And some people want to do that multiple times. In that environment, that uh, vision operator processor uh, triad combo, if they go into it with their eyes open and everybody on the team is signed up for that, that we're going we're gonna to pump this and flip it, that can work really, really well. In fact, you need it in tech to do that for obvious reasons where the conflict comes is if it's all sort of vague or not really talked about the visionary is, is the one and sometimes the operator get to get the smell of flipping but the processor the techie still it, it thinks we're doing this for the sake of humanity and we're going to save the world with my code that become that can become problematic a little down the line Sometimes there are separation issues need to happen pre-flip and so forth. So that's one thing is just scaling to flip. And essentially, and I, I cover this in my in my fourth book uh, called Surprisingly Do Scale, um, that the key difference between the world I live in, which is helping people build um, legacy scalability, sustainable scalability, and scaling to, uh, uh, to flip, is you essentially scale to flip by buying market share. That, I mean, you, you, could, you can boil it all down and, and use as many funny words and terms as you want, but essentially you buy early market share and, and sell at the most optimal time before you know, anybody discovers whether this is maintainable or sustainable. And I, there are a whole lot of wrinkles in that and there are exceptions and all the rest of it. Um, uh, legacy scalability can't exist that way. 
there's one person on God's earth who has transitioned from one to the other and has Jeff Bezos. Um, he did everything that you would do to flip it. And I, for many years, was sure he was just going to, because uh, you're, you're probably a little too young to remember this, but there were times when Bezos was under enormous pressure because Amazon wasn't making any money, never did make any money, and didn't look like it was ever going to make money. Now look at the darn thing. So he's one guy that's 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 used the um, skill to flip mindset and then got himself to a legacy business. And there are a couple of others as well, but usually they're very distinct. You know, the vast majority of flip transactions are under the radar. We don't really read about them unless we read D-Book or, or, or out to find out about them. And legacy scalability typically are people who just, it would, it would not register with them the notion of scaling to flip. That's not, that's not who they are. Yeah. Which one are you when you get involved in stuff? Uh, I, I, I had a different um, motive. Um, I, 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 I was pushed by intellectual curiosity is the honest truth. Um, you know, if I'd gone and been a doctor, I'd have done the same thing with bodies that have carved them open to see what makes them tick. And that's, that's my position. I'm not really in either of those worlds, which, which is very helpful for me because it allows me to be an external observer. I don't get emotionally caught up. I can deal with, you know, when I'm coaching folks, I tell them, I don't, your motive is, is not my issue. We're not going to get judgmental about you. I'm just here to help you do it. As long as you're not trying to do something illegal, we, we can make that happen. So I've got, I've got an intellectual curiosity. I, I have a fascination with patterns as has probably become very clear. And, um, that's what's in it for me. I, I, I love an aha. I mean, I love my model. I, my, you know, I, I, as I said, I invented, but one of the things that I love about it, I've got this team of scale architects, they're licensed practitioners, and I tell them all the time, trust the model, trust the model, trust the model, because it's, it's, base, it's truth. It's not something made up. And when I'm sitting working with an executive team and I see something and I realize that's not just something that just happened. That's transferable. That happens anywhere. I, I, I see these little nuanced parts of transitions in whitewater, and I'm adding to them all the time because they all help my clients accelerate it. Right? So, I mean, I'll give you a, a, a real quick example um, from your um, investor uh, listener's point of view. This might be quite useful. Uh, a couple of years ago, I realized that there's a key transition in whitewater that from the ad value point of view, if the senior team does want to sell, is really important. I call it moving from heads to hats. And the way that works is you go into a leadership team in late fund, then you said, what does a sales manager do here? Uh, boss will just say, Justin, come over and tell the man what you do. Uh, he wants to know what a sales manager is. Justin's the sales manager, so she'll tell you. And so what somebody, what, what a role is, is what that incumbent does, right? In, in Whitewater, it's really important to transition to a hats-based uh, perception of what leader, leadership roles are. What's the definition of a sales manager that blogs and company needs for that company to succeed, irrespective of the incumbent? Now, that's mm -hmm. obvious in retrospect. But when you've got often many of the original heads, you know, people who were the sales manager, maybe invented the sales manager role here, our sales director, our VP sales are there. It's really tough to begin, the, you know, you know, to make that transition, partially because it's, it's personally threatening a little bit. Do I fit the new hatch role? But also, why, are you telling me, are you trying to get rid of me? Is that what this is about? This job spec thing is so that that's a that's a little thing that came out of some work I did some years back, and I've been able to take that and use it as part of the toolkit to help accelerate that transition through white work. And and you can see if you're if you're a, a potential buy team, and you walk in and you see a bunch of people, and it's you might not ever use any of this terminology, but it's basically all heads past heads based. You know, it's Josh and Gina and Irene. And we definitely want Irene to stay. Josh, Josh is gone. Go. <laughs> you know, maybe we can get rid of him before the sale. <laughs> or you're walking in and you're thinking, really good CMO, CIO, CEO. Maybe need to work on the COO incumbent. The, your percent, your cap has gone up. Yeah. As a result of that. And and making that transition 
to get out of whitewater. These are the things that are needed. Now, you mentioned you have scale practitioners. You got people that are licensed, that, that go through your process, go through your training, and now they kind of work in, in businesses, right? Um, talk to us about that. Give us, give us a, a view as what that looks like. Maybe there's a listener that goes, hey, I need someone to come take a look at our business. We just acquired a business or we're looking to acquire or we're growing our portfolio companies and we could use some help. So what, what does that look like? Well, uh, it comes a little bit out of my, uh, what I've already shared about uh, what's important for me. Uh, I find myself, I've been doing this, as I said, uh, like I'm 129 years of age. <laughs> you look it. great. <laughs> Thank you. I've been doing this for a very long time. And what, what happened a couple of times in the past is, um, you know, I, I, you, you forgive me and listeners, please forgive me if this sounds uh, unduly brash, but it took me many decades to admit to myself, I'm pretty good at what I do. Uh, I've learned my, my um, uh, I've learned my skills and, you know, I've been doing it for a long time. And so uh, I look around and I've got eight people, I've got 10 people, I've got 12 people. It happened three times because I just had a lot going on. So I would need somebody to do this and then somebody would come along and offer that. And then I'd be working with 1099 contractors. Made sense. And I'd, I'd end up with this little, little money business. And it was all of the stuff that I didn't want to do. Um, so three times I, I had to give everybody long run. I'd be honest with people, give them a long runway. I promised myself I'd never do that again. And, and, uh, and part of the reason is that the other side of the tug on me is that I genuinely believe the, the predictable success model is a total game changer for anybody. It doesn't matter what organization they're running for profit or not for profit. So I wanted to have as big a footprint as possible, but I don't want to be running the business that's making the footprint bigger. So I had experimented with uh, licensing some folks before and realized it was just another equivalent of me building another business with all of that brought with it. And I found, um, uh, about 18 months ago, I think it was, uh, I was working with one of those guys, just one of those guys, uh, and I had such admiration for him, always did. And he said something to me that I hadn't realized about my own model. Uh, it was one of those ahas. And it just dawned on me. This guy should do it. So I, I, I set up a separate organization. I have no share in it. And it's run by a guy called, wonderful guy called Scott Ritzheimer. And he runs a company called Scale Architects. And it has the only license to license people in the predictable success methodology. So you can go see them all at uh, scalearchitects.com. There's a little directory. And uh, they're great people. Uh, I do huge amount of training. I'm, I'm on with them every month. Uh, I'm going next month to their first annual conference in, just outside Atlanta, and they're a great pleasure to work with. Yeah. So we've we've talked about a lot of stuff. Uh, you you know, before we end, the, the time flew really fast. Les, it was fun talking with you. Like you're you're <laughs> you're a hoot, right? Uh, before we go, uh, you recently published another book called Do Scale. Give us give us a uh, one of your favorite parts of the book, right? That's, you know, give us something that we could walk away from a golden nugget from the do scale book. Well, I, I think the uh, core, the, the, the book's emphasis uh, is in helping people decide whether they really want to do this or not, because there's, a, a, I wrote it initially because scale is one of those words that you ask 10 people what they mean by it, you're going to get 10 different perceptions and uh, definitions. And so I start out by simply defining scale for the book. You can go use another definition anywhere else you want. And it's this, scaling is the ability to grow to any size your industry will allow in whatever demographic area you want to compete. Scalability is the ability to grow to any size in the industry that you're in, because, you know, the chewing gum industry has a different market cap than the ring light industry in the demographic that you choose to compete in. So you might just want to, I mean, if, it, if we define that as geographical, you might just want to be local. 
you can scale locally. You might want to scale regionally. You might want to scale nationally. You might want to scale globally. Uh, I have a client who produces educational materials. Their definition two years ago was when scalability was within the English-speaking market. Now they've redefined that. They want to scale in the English and Spanish-speaking market. So you, def- you define your market and the ability to scale. So here's the takeaway. We've now defined it. It's the ability to get to. And listeners, I'm raising my hand up high like it's a skyscraper. And that's what your industry is like. It's like a 120-story skyscraper or a 60-story skyscraper or a 30-story skyscraper. Here's the difference between growing and scaling. Growing, you think back to the fun days. It's like going up that skyscraper by bursting out into the stairwell, shouting charge and running hell for leather up the stairs for as long as you can until you're exhausted. And then you stop and you really have to actually sleep. And you realize you left your wallet back there and you go down a few. And that's what it's like. It's like shoots and ladders. Every time you want to grow, take a breath. All right, guys, let's do it again. Out into the stairwell, up the scaling. You walk over to the elevator, you press the button, you decide which floor you're going to go on, and up you go. But here is the kicker. Your building doesn't have an elevator shaft. When you start to build scalability, when you're in fun, you have to install the elevator. If This is where the hard work comes in. This is where it's not glorious. The vision of getting into the elevator is fantastic. But vast majority of folks that well, I was going to say work with us not true because I, I, I help them do the opposite. The vast majority of business owners out there, they're in fun. They begin to hit white water. They think it's time to scale. They start making the elevator and then they lose patience and charge back out and up the stairwell again. And they never get round to building the elevator. So that's my takeaway. Very cool. Uh, two more questions. What questions should I have asked you in this interview that I completely screwed up and didn't ask you? I can't think of a single one, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, the only thing I would clarify is not that you didn't ask, but just for, so folks know, uh, my first book's Predictable Success. It talks about all those seven uh, stages. And, and if you like, I can share with the folks how they can get a, a, a huge expert from that. Second book is The Synergist, and it talks all about those four styles. My third book is called Do Lead. And it talks about how anybody in any part of the organization can use their natural style to be what I to do what I call not so random acts of leadership. And then the fourth book is Do Scale, and it drills into all the stuff we've been talking about. Very cool. Final question, and uh, kind of leads into this: is you know uh, where can people learn more, connect with you, buy your books, or do a deal with you? Well, uh, I could you know throw out all my social media handles and all that sort of stuff, but why don't we do this? Uh, I've put a page together just for your listeners. They just go to predictablesuccess.com. That's all one word, predictablesuccess.com forward slash Josh. Couldn't be easier. J-O-S-H. I see a page there. I've put up there for you. And you can get uh, a free extract from Predictable Success. It includes the whole of the first chapter and a few extra bits and pieces. And all my contact details are there. And they all come, as we've already heard, either directly either to me or to Blue, my uh Um, adorable assistant who can't read emails. So he gives them back to me usually. Very good. Very good. So Les, thanks for coming on the show, sharing your your story. This was a lot of fun. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow dealmakers in the audience. um, I hope you always reach out to our guests and say, thank you. Find a way to do a deal with them, buy their books, buy their coaching, do deals together. That's the, that's the mission and the purpose of this specific show. Um, head on over. I thank you for setting up that page. That's really awesome to predictable success.com slash, you know, backslash Josh, right. Uh, which will be in the show notes. If you guys forget uh, my name, your host. And uh, until then, man, if you guys are working on a deal, want to talk about it, come on the show, talk about a deal, or if you're looking for a deal, or if you had a deal gone wild or, or want to, you know, just chat deals, head on over to the dealscout.com, fill out a quick form, connect with us. And uh, maybe you'll be on the next show. Les, talk to you later. Ladies and gentlemen, talk to you all next episode. See you guys.